The download is complete. Welcome to the AV Forums Podcast, presented by Phil Hinton. Hello and welcome to October's Home Cinema Podcast. Coming up, we're going to talk about the new JVC projectors, the National Audio Show. Russell's going to review some KEF speakers. Steve's going to look at the LG 980T. And we've got a special guest, uh, Greg from THX and Line AV. And joining me on the podcast, as mentioned, is Russell, Steve and Greg. Good evening, guys. Evening. Evening, Phil. Hey, Phil. Now, we will apologise uh, in advance for the sound quality uh, for Greg. He is uh, a few thousand miles away uh, this evening while we record this. Um, it's nice to hear you again, Greg. Uh, last time we spoke was at the THX calibration course, which we held in June. It went down extremely well. It, w- it was a pleasure to uh, hang with you there and uh, be a part with AV Forms to do that class. It was a... Uh... It was a great uh, group of manufacturers and uh, people who got that together. So look forward to coming again sometime soon, hopefully. It was held at JVC back in June. We're going to do it again, hopefully next year, uh, like Greg says. Uh, Myself and Steve went down to JVC recently. We went to have a look at the new projectors from them, the DLA X30, X70 and X90. This was our first uh, opportunity to have a hands-on it was on uh, wednesday the 5th of october and uh, steve we were a little bit cautious uh, in terms of the x70 and x90 because of the marketing that these were going to be 4k projectors yeah that's right phil i mean obviously there's been a lot of talk on the forums about the uh, the 4k scaling that uh, that was included with the x70 and the x90 and clearly that did sound a bit suspicious to us prior to going in to to see them in in, in action um and I have to say that one of the things that surprised us, I think, initially was that the fact that this uh, this processing isn't just pure software. And I think uh, I think that made it a bit more interesting. It wasn't just a case of uh, some marketing hype to call processing um, something that it isn't. There is actually a uh, physical um, e-shift device that sits between the light path and the actual lens. Um, so so it's actually shifting um, the pixels diagonally um, half a pixel distance. Uh, and then processing is involved, taking those two images and creating one. So there is something physical involved. It's not just processing. And it does create a higher resolution image when it actually gets through the e device and out to the screen. Now, obviously, the suggestion there that they're using processing at some point, obviously, means that we were, we were concerned that this would introduce artifacts. Um, but we, we, we did test. We tested the X70. They had the X70 there. Um, we tested it. We put a multiburst pattern through. Uh, we looked at uh, a lot of uh, footage we're familiar with. And I have to say that uh, my initial impressions were that, that it actually looked quite good. Um, I couldn't see any artifacts. There was no artifacts on the multiburst pattern. It looked very clean. And um, and in fact, if anything, it looked to me as though motion, which is always a, a, one of the big bugbears with uh, DILA, the motion on it actually looked very good. It very D, D, I thought it was very DLP-like, in my opinion. Um, I don't know what you thought, Phil, but I, I would have to say, overall, I was cautiously impressed with the performance of the X70. I, I've got to say that was the first thing that I did notice with it because we went from the X30, which doesn't have the, the E-Shift technology. It's only the 70 and the 90. Now, the X30 looked like a JVC projector image, if if you know what I mean, in terms of motion. Uh, you did get uh, a little bit of motion blur there, which you expect with DILA. And and I think I turned around to you within a few seconds of watching the 70s and said, well, what? the motion's far better. It, was, it, it wasn't it was blurring as, as much as you would expect uh, using a DLA device. 
Yeah, absolutely. Phil. I mean, I think we were looking at uh, a scene from King Kong, one that you use quite often in your reviews, when uh, King Kong's on the ice with um, Anne Darrow. And there's a few big ca- camera pans in that in that scene, a lot of movement. And uh, I remember looking at it, thinking that, that looks really good. That 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 looks much smoother and um, you know more detail in the movement than, than I was seeing on the X30 when we watched the same scene previously. So, so yeah, definitely that that looked imp- impressive. Um, obviously on. T- for all three projectors, there's there's um, there's 3D, of course, and they've done some tweaks to the 3D. Apparently, they're using some new um, X, X-band glasses. So um, hopefully, they you know they they say that they, they like Sony. I think the lens is staying open for longer on the on the glasses themselves, um, which lets more light in, which makes it a brighter 3D image. But they also say that doesn't introduce more crosstalk. And uh, obviously, being JVCs, the blacks were excellent on both the X30 and the X70. Uh, we had you know very nice uh, deep blacks on those. So um, certainly looking interesting as far as, um, as far as we're quite excited about getting them in for review, aren't we, Phil? Yeah, it's um, it, it's always a, a difficult thing with JVC. They tend to keep the same chassis for, for a two-year cycle. So this is the second-year cycle for this particular chassis, which was uh, last year's X3, X7 and X9. So the chassis stays the same. They just changed some of the technology, up the contrast ratios a little bit. Got to say, I was really impressed with the X30. I mean, this is a £3,000 projector. We've just had the Panasonic PTA 5000 in for review, which was, uh, for an LCD projector, probably the best LCD projector I've seen for a long time. And the 3D was excellent on that. I've got to say, the X30, it's coming in at £200 cheaper. It has a higher native contrast ratio. Um, I think they're quoting 50,000 to 1 this year for the X30, 80,000 for the X70, and 120,000 for the X90. Uh, to be fair to JVC, they tend to uh, get very close to hitting those figures in, in calibrated modes. You know, we've we've measured them over the years and, and they do tend to have very high native contrast. So the X30 is a little bit better, I, I thought, in terms of, uh, in terms of dynamic uh, range and, and in terms of contrast. But it's going to be a tough battle because I've got to say the Panasonic this year is a very strong contender. We've yet to see Epson's uh, TW6000 and the Sony at that price point as well it's three thousand pounds and it looks really good so the x30 was really interesting in terms of what it has it has the uh, lens memory zoom this year which used to be uh, just a panasonic exclusive feature so the jvc now has that it doesn't have any masking on it so it's able to you're able to use that with 3d mode which for people who well into their, their scope ratio 3d films will be able to use a scope screen zoom it up uh, to fit fit the image in there which you can't do with the Panasonic unfortunately so the X30 is really looking like it could be a really big seller for them this year but again the competition is really strong well it's true Phil but I mean let's face it last year when the X3 came out um, there was literally no one no competition whatsoever at that price point they had pretty much the market to themselves at three and a half grand for uh, for the X3 and it was a superb projector um, they, they, I mean, obviously, they under they knew that going in this to this year, the end of this year and the beginning of next year, that they've got competition now. They've got the Panasonic, which just come out. You've got the Sony, and Sony's new projector, the 30, is definitely uh, upped its game from the 90 that you reviewed earlier in the year, back when the X3 came out. So, um, yeah, they've had to up their game. Um, they've gone pretty aggressive on pricing, from what I can see. You know, that that, that 3,000 price point includes two pairs of glasses and the transmit and the uh, transmitter. Um, as you say, it's got lens memory now. Which also works with 3D. It's also got anamorphic um, stretch in 3D. Um, in fact, it's got you know it's everything that the X3 had except for the motorized um, 
lens cover, which some people didn't like anyway. It's, it's looking like a pretty strong projector. And we, we did um, some, you know, obviously this was a pre-production sample that we were playing with, but we did some measurements and um, the grayscale was was um, probably the best I've ever seen out of the box. Um, now, clearly, as I say, that's a pre-production model. Uh, we'll wait to see what the actual production models look like. But um, the color gamut was um, reasonably reasonably close to X709. Um, and uh, overall, it looked like a very tidy little projector, particularly for the money that, that it's going to be selling for. You've got to ask, and I'll open this up to the other guys as well, that uh, with such a strong projector at £3,000 price point, you then look at the X70, the X90, you've got to ask, well, where is the sell up there? You know, what is it you're getting with the higher up models? I mean, it's been very typical of the, of the JVC line for the last uh, three years now. As, as you go up the model line, you get into the, the THX certified uh, certified units, and they go through a whole lot of extra quality assurance and uh, and, uh, and and manufacturing tweaking to make it to make it hit the THX standard. Um, and and I think you'll and I think if you put them up beside each other, you'd, you'd see a noticeable difference in the uh, in the quality of the image. It, it's interesting you raise that, Greg. I know Russell, you've raised points about uh, the whole THX certification uh, process in the past in terms of audio, but uh, I guess this is ideal time for you to ask Greg. We, uh, what are, what is the certification process for? I mean, I mean, I'm, we're talking predominantly projectors here. Are we leaving audio out of this for the moment, guys? Well, I, for the for JVC, they went it it, it went up to a. Uh, a hundred-page uh, white white-page manual on uh, on specifications that had to hit to be THX certified. It was a huge engineering effort by AVG to even make it hit the THX standards. And those are th- not those are not, those are things that were maybe not introduced uh, in, in the lower end models. Um, just from 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 uh, color uniformity, uh, light output uniformity, um, some processing characteristics. Uh, uh, that actually hits Rec 709 out of the box. Uh, you know, grayscale tracking, gamma tracking, um, a whole bunch of whole bunch of things. And then, then so that's this, looking at 2D and, and 3D as well. So is this like a, a generic set of standards for that entire line, or is each individual model test, each individual sample tested? I mean, surely they can't do that. Uh, they, they have to they have to send one one of each model for testing, and then it, ha- it has to hit um, with the it, with th- in THX world. We we do a, a lab sample. That meets standard, and then they have to send us a production sample that actually uh, that we test to, to to ensure that it does meet standard. And that's that's one from each model. Right. Okay. So production variances can result in a THX certified projector being quite a long way short of that mark. Well, oh, I didn't say that. Um, I, the, the, they, um, the, they have to send us an actual production sample off the assembly line, which again is tested by THX to to ensure that it does hit our standard. So, so whether it's pre-production and and we're in the engineering side of things and and designing a unit where it hits standard, and then they actually have to show that they've met that standard by sending us a production unit for for additional testing to to ensure that it hits the same standard off the production line. I guess what Russell's trying to get at there, Greg, I'll I'll jump in there, um, is manufacturing tolerances. Uh, I, I, you know, when you're talking about projector. It is going to shift over the life of the bulb. It, there's going to be other uh, tolerances in there for components and so on. So um, I take it Absolutely. when 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 a product is being tested, that's all taken into account. Um, it is within reason. Um, the biggest the biggest thing with um, with projectors that you don't have like with a, with a direct uh, with a direct view like a, a flat panel is the room environment and the screen uh, can can take a huge um, impact on the quality of the image. 
um, and, and you can't take that into account, you know, in the manufacturing process. Um, uh, you know, we're, we're in, the, in, in the THX lab, it's it's a very large, very, very black room. So you, so you don't have any interaction from the environment into what's happening on the screen or the interaction between the screen and the projector. But in, in a very typical home theater room, you know, you might have cream colored walls or a little bit of white ceiling or whatever. And that that, that can make it, again, a huge difference in, in, in the size of the color gamut or the shift of the color gamut. And so things that have to be, again, taken into account during the individual calibration to to get it from a a a, a some you know a, a good image to a perfect image. I guess what you're saying there, Greg, is that the THX out of the box, uh, the THX mode, it gets people in the ballpark. But to get the projector looking the best it possibly can, then you're talking about getting a professional calibrator in. Right. Well, I mean, if you if you can take a a, a THX certified projector out of the box and put it in a, put it on a on a in a true neutral screen, like a Studio Tech 130 by Stewart. In, in a black room, it's going to be darn, darn close to perfect. Um, but but as soon as you throw in a in a a, a, a gray screen or a uh, or a or a black diamond screen or, or something with with a with a with a characteristic to the screen, or you throw in room variants, you know, um, light colored walls, then it can be quite far off. Um, but you know that that's all part of the customization and the custom marketing and uh, and calibration is to take those things into account. Moving back to our look at the at the JVCs and and obviously that question there about what is the step up on on the X70 and the X90, Steve. Uh, again, this year the X90 is going to use uh, the top two percent on the production line parts, uh, so better lens, the the best possible uh, alignment for the chips and so on. That's all going to be in the top range model, which I believe is coming in at ten thousand uh, pounds. The X70 is coming in at six nine nine five. Both of them are THX certified for two D and three D. Uh, they have ISFC3 controls that is interfaces there as well for using custom software the X90 as well has automatic calibration this year which is something that JVC have done in house yeah that's right Phil that was um, a bit of a surprise to us we didn't realise that until we went to see them now clearly as you say that's in house it's not using say CalMAL or something like that um, I don't know what um, how the software has been developed I don't know what meters they're going to be using with it um, so it'll be interesting to see um, A if it works because frankly up till now I don't think any of the auto calibration software that we've uh, we've in, in TVs and projectors we've tried has actually worked yet. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see if, if A, if it works, and B, how, how accurate it actually is and, and how it's implemented. I think going back to the previous point about um, the X7 or X70 and, and X90, I, I've never been totally convinced by the uh, well, the concept of having the X9 or X90 against the X7 and X70 where they use 2% of the, of the parts and it's got higher um, you know, higher quality production um, the same problem would apply, as you mentioned, Phil, between the X3 and the X7, because the, the two projectors, although the X7 has THX certified and had a better contrast ratio, and basically if you threw in a, a Radiance or some kind of um, processor, good processor with the uh, with the um, X3 in order to calibrate the great scale and the um, and particularly the, the, the color gamut, uh, you could have a pretty good um, setup for less than the X7. Now, this year, of course, there's a difference. This year, the X7 has got uh, E-Shift, and also, it's got some other um, things like um, being able to uh, adjust the uh, convergence uh, across the, uh, I think, a uh, whole number of it's 11 by 11 different grids, um, allowing you to get, you know, absolutely perfect convergence as well uh, on when you set up the uh, set up the projector. 
So um, there are definitely some genuine differences now between the X30 and the X70, which makes the price differential, uh, I think, more attractive to consumers. Yeah, I'm not the, sure though about the X70 to the X90 personally. Certainly, from my my opinion, I, I had the X7 and the X9 in my room, perfect conditions, uh, blacked out room. Um, there is a difference between the two, and and it was quite an obvious difference in terms of sharpness to the lens. There was also the the contrast boost. Stick that in in a room like Greg says, where where there's white walls or white ceiling, or it's not 100. percent Then no, there's not that great great the difference between the X7 and the X9 because you're taking out the performance by shoving it in conditions that it's not suited for. So is there is there a three grand difference? I'm not 100% sure, but there's certainly a difference there uh, when I tested both of them in, in the room and I've still got the X9 there and it still puts out an absolutely fantastic picture. Is it a 10 grand p- picture? Well, I guess that comes down to the end user and what they're looking for. I mean, uh, I guess it's, it's a lot like... Uh, when you get into the world of of audio, you know you, you're you're going for the one percent or the two percent more. That's that's the kind of terms you're, you're talking about between the X7 and the X9, and probably again for the X70 and the X90. I did like the convergence thing, and and this is something that Greg might be familiar with. Greg, did you used to calibrate old CRT projectors? Absolutely. Well, the the, the new convergence tool works exactly the same as I only ever owned a Barco, but um. It, it, it was the same using the zones within the screen. Yeah. So you could go to a particular zone and make sure the convergence was absolutely bang on for that zone. And it, it did work. We had a quick play about with it. And it seems to be a nice little feature to make sure that, you know, all all three chips are absolutely bang on. There's no color fringing or anything going on. So, um, yeah, that was a nice little feature as well. So that was our uh, wrap-up and round-up and first hands-on look at the new JVCs. We're expecting the review samples through uh, middle of next month. So that's the middle of November. Might be a little bit too early for the next podcast for us to talk about them, but um, they're certainly coming through next month. So we're looking forward to that. And, of course, if uh, you want to go along and have a look at the X70 and uh, the X30. You can do this weekend at the Manchester Sound and Vision Show taking place in Manchester. Uh, all the details are on AV Forums. If you need those details, look them up and it should be quite a good show. You're heading up uh, this weekend, Steve? I will, I will be, Phil, yes. I'm going to go up on Saturday, have a look around, uh, meet up with some of the manufacturers and hopefully bump into a few members as well. Um, but yeah, I look quite looking forward to it. I, I went to the Bristol show back in February and uh, there aren't very many shows in the UK. So it's good to make the most of them when they do actually come around. Okay, so that's a Manchester show if you want to see the JVCs. And like I say, we should have them through for review starting uh, middle of next month. So we're going to move over to Russell talking about another show that you went along to. Uh, you did some uh, audio clinics as well, Russell, at the National Audio Show. Yes, yes, yes. That was some experience, me being um, lined up on a desk with some uh, luminary names from the printed press. And uh, being a, yeah, it, was a, it was a public sort of like question and answer session. Um, I did my best to keep my head down and keep out of the way. And um, at least one of the members on the panel had enough to say for everybody, so that made it easy. <laughs> no guessing which one. Um, <laughs> Um, but that was quite it was it was quite interesting because um, it was some of the questions being thrown forward actually although it was a very resolutely stereo show um, I think because it falls quite so close to Manchester and, and let's face it a show to staff a show send people away put them up in hotels isn't a cheap thing uh, I think a lot of the, the the more mainstream names and certainly the more AV orientated manufacturers are probably just going to hang on for Manchester so as a net result a very stereo show. Uh, so, Russell, you you said it's uh, very much a, a stereo show. Now, Bristol um, used to have that reputation. It's now sort of 50-50 between the whole 
avian and two-channel thing. Is there still Exotica out there, even though the the economy is not uh, the most healthy at the moment? I think Exotica is is, is as healthy as it's ever been. Um, there's, the, the, the people who've really got the money are still spending the money regardless, and I think um, it's probably the middle market. Um, you know, your sort of your thousand pound floor standers and things like that that, that have suffered, and, and and again the cheaper ends probably faring reasonably well. But you know, the sort of person who can afford to spend. 180 grand on a stereo setup um, is probably still able to spend 180 grand on a stereo setup and the, the, the economy won't have done much to dent that to be perfectly frank um, I don't know if that's true on the other side of the Atlantic as well um, from what I read it, it seems to be true but that said um, one of the main exhibitors there uh, is normally the Absolute Sound sorry not the Absolute, that's the magazine the Absolute Sound, is Absolute, uh, is, is absolute Sounds um, who, who normally bring in some very high-end sort of American and European kit? They were absent this year. Um, Cabas from France normally turn up with their um, their absolutely monster spherical speakers called La Sphere, which they must have lost a <laughs> lot of sleep dreaming up. Um, which is a fantastic listen. Um, uh, all of them, all of them were absent. There's no name, no Arcam. Yeah, in fact, in fact, if you had wandered around that show, you could have forgiven for been forgiven for thinking you were at a European show for French, for the French and the Germans, basically, with a few a few Swiss thrown in for good measure. Um, didn't make it any less interesting once you got your head around that. If you if you're into your stereo, but it was a little bit disappointing. I like to see a bit more of a blend, especially disappointing considering it's a far far better venue than virtually all of the other hotels because it is more of a sprawling country manor that's been converted. You get nice big rooms. Um, you know, you know, that aren't quite so cheek by jowl. You know, if you've got a bloke, I tend to find at Bristol, if you've got a bloke with a subwoofer really cranked up in one room, then the next two rooms are going to experience that as well, whether you want to or not. Um, it's better like that. In terms of product, uh, quickly going through the rooms and so on, I know it's not ideal circumstances for having a good listen, but was there anything that really sort of turned your head this year? If there was one room that really was um, really did catch my ears, if not the eyes, it was a room from a small Swiss crowd called Ensemble. Um, it was a simple straight pair of two-way floor-standing loudspeakers, their own amplifier, their own pre-amplifier, their own CD player. Um, it looked completely unremarkable in virtually a sort of a slightly glossy battleship grey. It sounded absolutely astonishing. I've never sat between, and there's no treatment in this room, by the way. So it's a, it's 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 one of the larger rooms at the hotel, but there was no treatment in it at all. It sort of you know took the hot seat because there was basically very few other people around on on that particular that particular time, and I've never heard a stereo image so convincingly portrayed in terms of depth, height, and width. You could tell the bloke playing the piano was sat at the right of the stage, sitting at approximately 45 degrees to the front of the stage. It was it was absolutely one of the most mind blowing things I've ever heard. Not the loudest system, certainly not the deepest, but in terms of just bringing the live performance into the room uh, and letting you f- you know feel what the musicians were doing, uh, it was it was absolutely mind blowing. Do you think there's still room for shows like this, Russell? I mean, uh, we've discussed it in the past on podcasts, and maybe the other guys can come in as well. I mean. It seems to be that people just don't have the time to sit down between a pair of speakers these days and and enjoy a piece of music. I think you know most people have their iPod on in the background. I mean, I'm talking for myself here. I've usually got iTunes playing on a set of uh, Genelec PC speakers if I want to listen to a bit of music. I mean, I, I don't go into the cinema room anymore to listen to music. I go in there to watch films. So um, do you think there's still a, a, a big market for two-channel or do you think things are changing? I think... Uh, <sighs> 
I think multi-channel has made audio accessible to a lot more people, and that I suppose proportionately the two-channel side of it will have faded in interest for some. But it's a bit like any hobby. If music is what you're really into, then there's still going to be a market for it. I mean, you know, you look at the number of high-end manufacturers of purely two-channel audio and how and how well some of them are doing. Um, I think there will be. You know, it's uh, you know, it's, it's like with any hobby, there'll always be room for the high end. Um, I like I like my tele I like my telescopes. I don't you know I don't do the sort of like uh, how can I put it the home cinema on the box of poking a telescope out of, out my bedroom window and just peering at the stars that way. I go and get thirteen hundred quid's worth of ruddy great scope. Go and set it up in the garden. Leave it to cool down for an hour. Calibrate it, tweak it, polar align it, and then an hour and a half later start looking at the stars. If you want to do something properly, then there's still only one way to do it really properly. <laughs> you geek. <laughs> Yeah, I'm absolutely geek. <laughs> hey, I, <laughs> I, since I've outed myself as a telescope fiend, I'm actually stunned by some of the people that fessed up as well. Albeit they all they, they all suffix that, have, but for Christ's sake, don't tell anybody. <laughs> <laughs> uh, sticking with two channel and its popularity, uh, Greg, what what's things like on your side of the pond in terms of two channel? Is is multi channel taking over, or, or is there still a market for for that side of things? Uh, definitely multi-channel has taken over but i mean you know like russell said on on the higher end people they, they'll they'll still have a two-channel room you know they'll have it in their parlor or their you know their sitting room set the speakers or you know have one chair in the middle but uh you know but for the typical uh middle income person that's looking for uh you know an everyday room it, it's they're going to uh you know a 5.1 system or even a 7.1 system when, when your system's got to share the house with your family, you're going to get, get the main room to do whatever it is that the family's going to enjoy most together, aren't you? And that will tend to be films and telly and exactly. 5.1. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, Russell, in terms of uh, how the show went, I mean, there was a lot of people missing this year, but was it still worth the visit? Um, yeah, I think yeah, I think so. Um, the, 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 the last day on the Monday was, was a little bit disappointing in terms of attendance. I... <sighs> I could see it surviving a bit better if they space it out further from one of the big, either Northern or, or, or London or, or the um, West Country shows. I think it was a bit too close to Manchester for its own good, to be perfectly honest. I think if they get that right, then yes, it, it's certainly worth a visit, if only to show you how different things can be. Cool. So um, the National Audio Show, do you think it'll be around next year? Is it, is it growing in strength or do you think it's it, it's there's a possibility that we might have seen the last of it? I, that everything's a possibility these days. Yes, it is a possibility. If it is there, go and see it because it is worth it for for us. The different outlook. Excellent. So uh, we're going to move things on. We'll be back in a few seconds. For up to the minute AV discussion and hardware reviews, visit avforums.com. So welcome back, and uh, we're going to move things on. Uh, one of the most common questions on the forums is, "What are the best settings?" for my TV and uh, to answer that question all the way from New England is is Greg Lowen. Now Greg, you run a company called Line AV but you're also the THX educator in terms of uh, display calibration so maybe you can tell our listeners a little bit about yourself. Sure, um, I've been uh, doing a video calibration work for um, 11 years now. It started off as a hobby and quickly went into a profession and then I found there was a large need to actually educate people on how to do this and uh, got together with several different companies. And lastly, uh, with THX now for over four years, 
Um, they're a lead video educator and a video standards instructor. Um, so I, I go around the world teaching a video standards to people that they want to learn about standards and, and how to get a system to reference. So, I mean, we're talking about uh, reference standards. We're talking about display calibration. But uh, for your average forum user who uh, maybe that terminology baffles them at this moment in time, there are things that, that they can do uh, to improve the image on their TV when they buy a new TV or even the, the TV or projector they're using now. And uh, that's in terms of using uh, calibration discs. Now, it's one of these things that people look at these discs, they put the test patterns up and they haven't got a clue what it is that they're supposed to be looking for and they get disillusioned and they put the discs away and never look at them again. So perhaps we can start at the very, very beginning and maybe explain what calibration is all about and why they should maybe take you know, an hour or so with these test discs and, and actually learn what it is they're looking for. Okay. Well, how I like to start is um, when I talk about video calibration, I talk about avatars as an example. You know, James Cameron, uh, director of photography of Vince Pace, they spent $600 million putting this movie together. Um, every aspect of that movie from a color standpoint, from a black level standpoint, was, was very, was very uh, carefully um, articulated and, and, and devised. And the whole purpose of calibration then is looking at that content that, that so much effort was, was, was taken to create to recreate that the same way in your home and that's what calibration is it, it's it's showing the director's intent in your home so basically it's getting your display whether it's a projector or a flat panel to the same standard as the director's so when when the director says that's coca-cola red and that's what i want in my movie that you'll actually see that same shade of red or you'll see that same shade of shadow detail now greg one of the the biggest things that, that people get in their head is that an image should look lifelike. It should it should look like real life. But I, I think what people forget is that that films are made to tell stories that aren't real life, and and things don't always look the way you expect them to look. Such as Spielberg's War of the Worlds, where he he completely oversaturates the whole image, blows the highlights, and crushes the blacks, and so on. But on a, on a perfectly calibrated display, you would still be seeing that as the director intended. Absolutely, and, and that's a good point to say. Um, you know, a lot of the advertisers say it should be look, H, high definition should be like looking out a window, and that's really not correct. Um, high definition um, movie reproduction should be like looking through the director's eyes, or, or specifically uh, looking through the director of photography's eyes, and, and seeing that that artistic intent the way they want you to see it through their eyes. And of course, that's what calibration is all about. In, our, in the class that I teach, we talk about viewing the Mona Lisa. And, and if you are going to going to the Louvre and, and look at the Mona Lisa, and, and there, there was someone at a, at, a, at a kiosk at the front, and they had five different colors of, of sunglasses that you could choose and, and put on to look at the Mona Lisa, you know, a, a yellow-tinted pair or a pink-tinted pair or a blue-tinted pair, which pair of glasses would you pick? And, of course, the answer would be, well, I don't want to use any pair of sunglasses. I want to look at the Mona Lisa in the coloring that it's supposed to be. And that's the same thing with calibration. You want to look at the artist, the artist's content in the coloring that they wanted. Now, when we're talking about standards, um, there are differences in standards, Greg. And I think sometimes people get mixed up with this because video standards, they vary from uh, 35mm and, and digital cinema standards. Um, in the film world, in the digital cinema world, you have far wider gamuts, but you have the bandwidth in terms of playback devices in theatres to show that the way it should be seen. 
in terms of video material, we're, we're strictly in the 8-bit realm when it comes to color, aren't we? Uh, yeah, 8-bit realm, uh, 256 points. It, it's, um, th- that, that, is, that, is, that is true as well. But when, when content is created in, in, po- in the post-production world when the movie's being created, it's actually looked at in three different formats simultaneously, and they're doing three different corrections simultaneously. Well, one is DCI for digital cinema, the other is for film, for theatrical content, and the other is Blu-ray, and we call that, that Rec. 709 content. And all three of those are being graded and, and tweaked simultaneously for three different types of playback. Um, so, so no matter what content you see, you're seeing it as the director intended. And, and I guess getting to your point is that, yes, there, there, there are going to be differences between the way that it looks theatrically versus the way it looks or theatrically on film versus theatrically digitally. And then in the home on Blu-ray, because they are three different formats and they have three different three different types of limitations. And, you know, eight bit or ten bit being one of them. Now, the reason I, I raise that is because we're using the, the term director's intent. And I think it's important to get across um, that that even though there are different standards, the the film that that you get on Blu-ray in post production, it has gone through and it has remained at all the standards. And the weak point is always uh, the last point, which is the the consumer display or projector. Absolutely. I mean, that is you know the eight bit link. I mean, it, it is the weakest part, but they are actually looking at the content in in eight bit um, to verify that it does look correct. So. You know they're they're doing the same effort on on the eight bit Blu-ray content as they are in ten bit theatrical content, and yes, it it does look different, and and differences are usually subtle. Now, um, let's get back to uh, Joe Bloggs. He's uh, he, he's he's looked at this demo disc. He doesn't know what he's doing. Um, he's he's looked at the test patterns, and it's just confusing him. So, where should uh, our users start? Where where's a good point for our users to start at? Well, you have to start off selecting the correct mode on the TV set. Um, every display out there has a uh, has a mode, whether it's a sports mode, a vivid mode, a, a movie cinema mode, pro mode. And, and I'd like to say that, that more and more TV sets are actually having a THX mode. Um, a THX is going to be the, the closest image you can get out of the box to perfection. So I, I would suggest, if you suggest purchasing a, a THX certified display. And if you do not have that, then your next best option would be choosing the, uh, the professional mode or the, the cinema mode as a starting point for, to, uh, for your viewing. Can I, can I just ask, the, the, the THX mode, is, is it trying to get as close to Rec. 709 or, or, or grayscale to within a certain tolerance? Is it, is it actually a published set of standards, or is it something you have to take as read when you buy a TV with that badge on the front? Um, it, it's not a published set of standards, but it is, it is an internal set of standards that, that's shared with the manufacturer. So the, man, the manufacturer has to, has to, has to uh, put that set into production at, within a certain tolerance of those standards. Right, I see. Okay, because I actually have a THX TV, and I do use it on the THX settings. But but then you know I, again that that does take into a, that does when you when you're in THX mode, there is certain tolerances on the assembly line, and, and those and, and those tolerances can't adjust for individual uh, room variances, especially with front projectors. So uh, you know even in even in THX world, you know we we sit we go for a very very good high quality out of the box experience. There is always no matter what you do. Um, you know what you know what what you do. There, there's always room for further improvements. You know, with the custom calibration. So, Joe Bloggs has bought his TV and he's put it into THX mode. Um, That'd be me then. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's put it into THX mode, Greg. Um, what's the next thing he should think about? Is it the the environment in which the TV is in? Is it in terms of where he places it 
you know, in terms of where the windows are, or does he just stick it in THX mode and, and enjoy it? Well, definitely, environment is, is the next big thing. So I assume we're talking about flat panels, but um, e- either way, you, you have to be in subdued lighting at best or, or a darkened room, uh, to preferably. Um, you know, when, whenever you have a, a, a light source, your eyes are drawn to that light source. So your eyes are drawn to that panel, but if you have your receiver underneath the, the 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 flat panel, or you have a window off to the side, or a light off to the side, or or your wife cross stitches, and all, all 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 women love to cross stitches. It's it's a it's a it's a it's, a, it's an XX rule. Um, they th- there's always some light on in the room, so you have to minimize light on the room because whenever lights on in the room, your eyes are being drawn away from the source. So um, turn the lights off in the room. Have your eyes focused on the source, and, and then the very next best the, the very next thing to do is uh, set the black level. Um, that is that is the number one way to make a display look better at that point. After you've you've controlled your room environment and you've set the display in the correct uh, viewing mode, uh, set the black level. A black level is usually mislabeled on a display called the brightness control, but it sets the absolute black level. And uh, you want to have the black level set correctly. So when James Cameron said, I want to see that amount of shadow detail, you want to see the same amount of shadow detail in your display. If you set it too high, then blacks become gray. And you'll have artifacts and, and pixelation seeing in the image that you wouldn't normally see. And if black level is set too low, you're going to have a lack of shadow detail. And it might look more contrasty, but you're actually going to be losing detail to the image. So there's a very specific setting for the black level on a display. Okay, so we're, we're up to uh, black level. What kind of things can people use to set the black level on the TV? Um, well, the easiest thing is to grab it at a THX... Uh, THX certified DVD or Blu-ray. Um, they all they all have the optimized modes on them, opti modes on them, and you can go in and and set the black level. You can set the white level, and then and, and color intent on those settings. But short of that, um, uh, Video Basics, uh, the Joe Kane disc, uh, DVE HD Basics is a great disc. Um, Disney Wow is another good disc. Um, the the, D, uh, the the Digital Video Essentials DVE. That sells for uh, less than 25 on Amazon. I'm sure you can buy on Amazon UK. Um, Disney Wow is a little bit more money, um, but it's got some great demo discs, and it just it just it goes over the front panel controls of, of brightness, contrast, color, and tint, and how to get those things nailed. In terms of, of test patterns, which which ones are they going to use to set the black level? Well, for black level, you want to use what's called a pluge pattern. And a pluge pattern, uh, well, generically, it stands for a picture line of generating equipment, but it, it it gives you a series of patterns on the screen that, that shows you what where black is, a shade of gray just above black, and a shade of gray just below black. And in video, you you want to make the black level and the below blacks match, and then just barely see the shade of gray above black. And when you do that, that that's gonna that 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 shade of gray above black represents shadow detail, and that's the that's the content you want to see in your display. And you always have to when when you're setting up a display, you always have to. Uh, Go back to test this. Um, you you can never pull out actual content and say, "Oh, this is this is how this should this scene should look in this way." Um, the, your eye just does not have the um, the ability to differentiate on on moving content. You always got to go back to uh, to reference test images when you're setting up a display. Greg, one of the other common questions that we get on the forums. I mean, we we're forever answering the question, but maybe we can get it um, from from yourself, being a experienced at this and and a standards trainer. A lot of people put a plush pattern up and they can't see blacker than black detail on their display. So what's going wrong there? 
Well, if they can't see it, there's one of two things happening. The, the panel is set up to where it's supposed to be, or the uh, the image is being cut off. The signal is the, the digital signal is being at zero to two fifty six, um, but black is actually defined at sixteen bits. Um, however, some DVD players, if they're on black level expanded or, vac or black level um, limited mode, it, it might not pass that that zero to sixteen bits, so you would not see blacker than black and maybe that's a little bit too technical but i think that gets to the point um so that 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 material that you're supposed to see the below black may not be passed or might have been cut off from the receiver as an example or or the blu-ray player might be might be starting the signal at 16 bits versus zero um in, in the com in computer world we go from zero to 256 in, in television world we go from 16 to 235 and sometimes it's mislabeled or it's either mislabeled or it's, or it's misdecoded on the, we call it P, PC level or video level. And we want to be working with video levels and every once in a while we'll, we'll mistakenly get a, a PC, PC level or something will output the PC levels and you won't have that content being shown or being passed. So I, I guess if, if they're having that issue, then it's, it's a, a good point to then start going through the video chain and making sure that everything's set up correctly. Exactly. And, and when we talk about reference calibration um, as a professional calibrator, you always start off with the projector or, or the display, whatever head unit you have, and, and, and you hook the generator directly to it and you calibrate the display. And then you work backwards and you work through the video chain using the cabling, using the processor box, using the, uh, the Blu-ray player, using the, the, the high-def uh, cable box or the high-def satellite box, and looking at each step and making sure each step is not clipping the signal or, or, or cutting off the black levels and, and, and treating the signal appropriately. So there's, def there's definitely a methodology, whether you're doing it professionally or even, even as a hobbyist, you know, you want to be at a certain level and, and use a standardized methodology. Otherwise, you're going to be prone to uh, messing up somewhere and not, not quite sure what you're doing or where you're going. I mean, one thing that uh, I guess it's just habit with myself, and I, I guess Steve's maybe the same, you know, reviewing so many products and calibrating so many different products. The first thing I always do with a display is go in and switch everything off in terms of <laughs> all, all the processing and everything else that, you know, the marketing material, the dynamic contrast and so on. Um, is that advice that you would give to people? Go in, switch everything off and, and then work through it? Absolutely. You know, and, and we say the same thing in the class. When in doubt, uh, turn things off. But I'd like to say, though, that when you do turn things off, you try to do it intelligently. Try to actually figure out what it does or look at the image. You know, what's it doing with it on? What's it doing with it off? Um, I would like to think that if you're in the cinema mode, a pro mode, and then definitely the THX mode, all those um, optional things are already turned off, especially in the THX mode. So you're not doing any extra processing. You're, you're already in, in what we call one-to-one -one pixel mode, which is not the same as full mode usually. A one-to-one -one pixel mode is, is going to have the, the most resolution with the least amount of processing. Um, you know, so there's, there are things, there are, there are a whole bunch of different settings on some displays um, you know, that can adversely affect the quality of the image if, they're, if, they're, if things are turned on, like a flesh tone enhancement turned on or the black enhancement control, like you said, dynamic contrast, dynamic iris, all things that can uh, realistically bastardize an image. Now, it's interesting you mentioned one-by-one uh, -one pixel mode there. Uh, I guess this is the most common thing that people get wrong, um, and, and even professionals get it wrong from time to time, is to make sure that even though the set is perhaps in 16-by-9 mode in terms of aspect ratio, that doesn't mean it's not doing overscan. Uh, that is correct. Usually in, in full mode, 
or 99% of displays in full mode, um, the, the, there are they are pulling in a two, usually a 2% overscan area, uh, which means that which means one pixel from the source is not matching one pixel on the display. Everything's being processed to to zoom in those that 2%, and that that 2% is is meant to cut off um, cut cut off artifacts on on the edge of the image, which is usually uh, closed captioning information or TV guide information on the edges of the image. Um, that you're not meant to see, or the broadcaster might have might have his image off-centered by one or two or three pixels. So if if, if the image is being overscanned a little bit, um, it'll it'll eliminate those that those artifacts and make the image look better. Um, but it's only better on on a quick viewing. It's 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 really less um, less crisp because you're not in the one-to-one -one pixel mode. So you have to ensure you're you're in one-to-one -one pixel mode, which is not the same as the full mode. Or if it is a full mode, it's usually an offset of the full mode. So you start off in full mode, then you switch to one-to-one -one pixel mode from that point. So, so I guess that that's got to be you know one of the the major pieces of advice to people is that if they're watching HD and they want to get the full HD image without the the TV adding in this this overscan, um, then they should be either be putting it into one by one mode or. I guess different manufacturers call it different things like just scan or uh, pixel match or there's all different names for it but they really should be going in and if they can't find a mode like that then looking for something like overscan on and off. Right, uh, overscan on and off or, or, or uh, some, some panels call it the just mode, one-to-one -one pixel mode. Um, you know, so every every manufacturer calls it a little bit different. I, I think if you if you read in the in the user manual, there there is a there on most manufacturers now there is a paragraph on, about you know when to when to use one versus the other and which which mode you should actually be in for one to one pixel mapping. So we've we've sorted out the aspect ratio. We sorted out the black level. What's the next thing that that someone should be concerned about with the flat panel or projector? Well, the the, the white level or the contrast. Um, you you can make displays look very very bright. However, usually the brighter you make a display, the um, the more the more whites are going to be clipped. So the example of um, well, when I'm in Canada, I talk about ice hockey. I, I don't know how much you're into curling where you're at, but in, the, uh, in Canada, curling is another another thing with ice or uh, downhill skiing or, or a movie with clouds. Anything with a lot of whites in it. Um, if the contrast is too high, you'll you'll lose the detail in whites uh, in, in in skating and hockey. You'll you, you won't see the cuts in the ice from the blades of the skates because the white the whites are being pushed too hard. So you have to you have to adjust the contrast to make sure that you're seeing the details on whites. And again, that's a different that that's another that's another pattern. It's just the opposite of a black level pluge pattern. It's a white level pluge pattern, and it just has it has a series of patterns just around white. And you turn the contrast down to make sure you can see all those patterns. And again, uh, any THX disc has the uh, has the optimodes in there where you can you can jump the disc optimizer. You can jump in there and just select that pattern, just turn the contrast to make sure you can see all the different boxes. So, I mean, this is advice that we've given time and time again, Greg. Um, I mean, obviously, we brought you along because we're going to do this in stages. We're going to talk about basics on this podcast. In future podcasts, we're going to up the ante a little bit and start talking about grayscale and, and color gamuts and so on. Um, but what are the advantages for people to just get hold of a test disc and set the front panel controls? I mean, what kind of difference are they going to see there? Um, sometimes dramatically huge differences. Um, you know, I always, <clears throat> when I talk about calibration and, and, and when clients talk to me on the phone saying, well, when I come to your home, are you going to notice a difference? And I don't know where you're starting at. So I can't honestly say, you know, 
you know, a lot of people they're 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 watching in sports mode, or when you turn the TV set on, it's in sports mode or vivid mode. It's it's kicking out a whole bunch of light output. It, it it's got the wrong gamma curve. The colors are being very bold, and and it's all about selling TV sets in the showroom. It's not about making a a pleasant display to look at and making accurate colors that aren't going to hurt your eyes for more than a 15, 15 minute viewing session. So it, it's turning on the display and getting a reasonable light output. And, and then getting the colors accurate. And um, it, so for a lot of people, though, just setting it to that movie mode or the THX mode and setting the black level and the white level, that's going to get you you know, 90% of the way there. It's going to be a much more pleasing experience. It's going to be uh, – in THX, we like to say um, um, as a director intended and free from dis distraction and fatigue. So distraction would be like the artifacts, the, the edge enhancement stuff, the non-one-to-one non -one pixel mapping stuff. Then fatigue is, you know, looking at a light bulb that that's 500 watts of light output for three hours is going to give you one heck of a headache. So turning down that light output so you can actually watch Lord of the Rings or you can watch, you know, Avatar from start to finish and have an enjoyment and not have a head, you know, not have fatigue and not be tired at the end of it because your eyes are squinting and, and, and your irises are so strained at, at the end of a three-hour movie session. I guess this is one of the points that we struggle to to get across to people when we're talking about calibration, when we're talking about setting displays up for the environment that they're in, is that the experience should be comfortable. It, it, you should be able to watch it, like you say, for, for a length of time. And I guess the, this gets clouded in internet land, in, in forum land, where people are talking about, well, this display should hit 130 candelas squared brightness and, and so on. They're getting wrapped up in in these figures. I mean, one of the the things that's most common is black level measurements. You know, they're talking about a zero point one difference in terms of candela squared or foot lamberts. Um, you're not going to see that. That that's not worth worrying about, is it? Uh, not at all. And and I kind of chuckle because the people that are talking about this point one foot lambert measurement, they're, they're using a tool that's they can't even measure that low or can't measure that low accurately. And irregardless, um, the actual standard for um, for post-production work is a is a 10% ambient room light environment. So if the peak light output on the display is a is say a, a hundred candelas, uh, you know you should have a 10 candela light behind the display as a backlight. And as soon as you put a light behind the display, your reference for black level. Um, your, your eye pay, plays a trick on itself with contrast and, and your blacks will look inky black regardless. So, so um, you know, if you don't have the best black level in the world, just make sure you have a backlight behind the display. And that's a that's a huge way to make a display look better, actually, which is something I just you know thought about now when we talked about that. So put a backlight behind the display, set the black level um, one to one pixel mode and make sure that you're in the THX mode or the cinema mode. Now that's a, that's another interesting point, Greg. I guess it's one that we forget about sometimes is is bias lighting and and trying to get the the correct amount of light into the room in terms of your viewing room. Now, um, in terms of projectors, that's pitch black. It, it will always be pitch black. But in terms of watching a a flat panel in a living room and so on, there is going to be ambient lighting in there. But it's important to to try and get the right amount of light. The right amount of light and actually the the correct color of light as well because. Um, what happens is when your eye looks at it, looks at the display, looks at the television, it's looking at a light source, and your your eye, you, you subconsciously over a period of time, your eye tires, and it'll look away from the light source to relax itself, to, to relax the eye muscles, then look back on the display. But if it looks away from the light source, so it's looking at the wall beside the display, and if that wall is yellow, 
or green, um, then it, it'll look back at the display and then it'll see yellow deficiency because the display you know, is, is lacking that, that characteristic yellow that's on the wall. So ideally, you actually want to have the, the, the wall behind the display, a neutral gray or black, and then have a, a neutral light, which we call a D65 colored light, or a, a neutral gray light behind the display as well. So you're not having a color shift, but yeah, any light's better than no light. And, uh, you know, try to get it neutral in nature versus a very blue light or a very green light or a very, uh, a very tungsten, or which is an orange light. Greg, you've just made my day. I've got a 50-inch plasma inset in the wall, gently backlit by a rope light, and the wall in which it's set itself, in turn, is slightly backlit by a white rope light. And it does indeed. The moment you turn the rope light, rope light on, the black levels look immeasurably better because my TV's strong point is not its black levels. Right. And you'll find, I mean, and, and even, even the marginal TV sets, you know, you put the backlight behind the blacks. Because what happens is, because if, if you have a black on the display... And you look beside the display, if it's in a dark room, that's real black, right? So you have the light output yep. of the display versus real black. And as soon as you make that real black a little bit lighter than black, then that's your reference point then. So if your reference points better matches the displays, your, your eye will trick itself to think it's perfect. You know, it's definitely a, 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 a neat little tweak to, uh, you know, to, to bring up your quality of your contrast. Perceived con- I call it perceived contrast ratio. Yeah, we're not got it playing in the background at the moment with something that's broadly mostly night scenes at the moment, and it does look surprisingly black. But I know it's not from from having you know tried setting it up using the test discs and whatnot. And of course, the backlight has one other one other uh, side benefit as well. Even with all the lights out, watching your film, you can still find your glass of wine. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> that's an important point. Yeah, Greg. Um, as you know, when we review uh, TVs and projectors on, on AV forums, uh, we obviously calibrate them as close as we can to uh, reference standards, which is Rec 709 and D65 for the color of white. Uh, now, one of the questions we get asked most commonly uh, after we've published a review is what were your calibration settings on the TV that you calibrated? And um, we always say uh, in the reviews or in, in the question in the thread afterwards, uh, we say that, um, you know, we don't want to really give you these settings because that was specific for that panel in that particular viewing environment. And the chances are that it won't be just the chances are that it won't be applicable to your panel in your viewing environment. The chances are that it will either make no difference or make the image worse. Perhaps you'd like to just comment uh, from your experience on that particular issue. Um, I, I think you're going to on a flat panel versus a projector, especially. Uh, I think the flat flat panel, if if you if you take the brightness, contrast, color, tint, and the preset mode, you're going to be somewhat close assuming that the DVD player is set up correctly. But as soon as you put the DVD player and the receiver into it, that can change things. Um, but as far as grayscale and, and the color management controls, you're going to be all over the place. Um, and, and I think your chances of making a display worse versus making it better on using someone else's settings is what you're going to be doing. It's, it's, a, it's a total crapshoot. I don't think you're going to be getting any any improvement at all by using someone else's settings on the advanced settings or the gamma settings and color management settings and grayscale settings. You're totally wasting your time. I mean, Greg, my argument always is that they come back with, well, I know why you're not giving it, giving us the settings, but it's a starting point. And my, you know, comeback on that is, is always, well, grab a test disc, put it in cinema mode, THX mode, set your brightness and contrast, and you're, you're almost there anyway. I, I think the starting point really should be the THX mode or the cinema mode in, in the preset controls. And, and I, I think that if, if you go into the advanced menu and you're not using instrumentation and you're not using test disks, um, I, I think you're just wasting your time. 
uh, that, that you act and and just just taking settings from somebody else and applying them to your display, uh, I don't think is really going to be of any benefit. Um, so, you know, that's where I'm at on that, and that's that's a professional opinion. And I'll have other people say that I'm just trying to trying to protect my profession or try to create work for myself or my colleagues, but um, yeah. Uh, I, I haven't seen that. And I've seen all kinds of people. I go into their homes and say, oh, I got these settings off of this form or that form. And it's kind of like, well, good for you. But, you know, it's it's really. But then when I do the measurements, they're, they're not even they're not helpful. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's always been our standpoint. I know it frustrates our our members, our listeners sometimes because we won't give them the sentence. But, you know, there you go. That's the reasons why we don't. And uh uh, it could do more damage than it does good uh, by by sharing settings. So moving things on, Greg, just to wrap up on this one, uh, just for, for this episode, we'll have you back on, on future podcasts to go in more detail with Grayscale and, and so on. But recently there was a conversation in the Projectors Forum. I'm not going to draw any attention to who made the comment. People can read the thread for themselves. But uh, somebody said that, that display calibration is subjective and uh, yes, you can calibrate your TV, but at the end of the day, it's it's what you think looks good. What would your response be to something like that? God bless them. Um, you know, this is all, I, I bring this back, I keep bringing this back to Avatar, you know, um, the six million, six, $600 million movie. Um, it, it, Every detail in that movie was 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 very was very specific on the coloring and the and the black level characteristics, the gamma characteristics, and do you want to see the content the way the director intended? And if that's the case, or the case is, do you do you, or the or the other question could be, do you want to watch? Do you want to view the Mona Lisa through pink colored glasses or yellow colored glasses? And if the answer is no, then calibration is essential. Um, you know, if you don't care how the Mona Lisa looks, or you don't care how Avatar looks, then then calibration is not essential. And God bless you, and have fun with the remote control. Um, so, you know, for anyone to say that that, that it's subjective, um, it's not. Uh, it, the, the, the the video standards are, are very clear, clear a, spe, a set of specifications, um, and they're they're measurable, and we and we can we can take care of them. Now, the only subjectivity room in there is when you're working on the display displays that don't follow the standards and you do have some displays out there you know some lower end units the non-thx certified stuff um you know speaking of that you know that includes the non the low end jvc unit that if, if they don't follow the standards or, or they have a they don't have that that correct color gamut to begin with then there is subject some some sub subjectivity involved in that but if you have a, if you have a good display that that does follow video standards and you have the correct instrumentation to actually measure those standards and and do the measure those adjustments from a scientific standpoint uh you know that's that's where you want to be and that's that's hot and then you, you can set it up as the director intended and actually see you know the, that work as the mona lisa was meant to be viewed greg do you think it's a it, it's a lack of education um in terms of what the public know about uh, how an image should look i mean for for well, since the dawn of TV, they've always had controls on the front of them, and people have always set them up the way that they think something should look. And uh, uh, you know, there's never been any education as to the standards, and this is how something should look, and that's how you're supposed to see it. Do you think there's there's a lack of education, and do you think there's there's some way that um, you know bodies like THX and forums like it, AV forums can can get across the 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 message that you could be getting so much more out of your display. I, I, I think 
that that needs to be preached further. Um, and and definitely it's an X Y thing. The guys want the guys want to play with the remote controls and do their tweaking. Um, it, it comes also down to the the broadcast side of the industry, not the theatrical side. The broadcast guys, they have a series of standards, and from from a very long standpoint, they haven't followed those standards very well. Um, you know, in, in the United States, we have what's called the NTSC, and as as a joke, we say that an acronym stands for never twice the same color. Um, that so historically, you know, on the broadcast side of things, when you have multiple cameras on a live event and those cameras aren't individually calibrated you can't you can never have a reference image and that's some of the that's some of the backlash that we have to fight that we that we don't see on the theatrical side on a theatrical movie there are there are hundreds and hundreds of people working on different parts of that of that content in post production and each one of those monitors needs to be set up exactly the same way otherwise when they put all that content together from those 200 200 or 400 monitors that they're working on onto one final product if those monitors aren't all exactly the same, that content won't be exactly the same. And, and you know, it, so there's a, there's a difference there. And I think so. Some of the difference is it's from the the broadcast side of things versus the theatrical side of things. And the theatrical side of things, it, it's it's 100% consistent that you need to have monitors calibrated to look at a reference image, and then you know have a reference image and enjoy it for what it is. At the end of the day, the artistic intent, the way it's supposed to be seen, versus something sub subject sub subjective, which is the two, the two channel audio guys tweaking with knobs. <laughs> um, and just just finally, I mean, we're moving into the digital age now. I, I'm not sure how far along you are in the United States switching from analog to digital broadcast, but um, next month sees the last transmitter in the UK switch over to digital uh, in terms of TV, um, in terms of... Uh, movie playback we've got blu-ray now we're, we're in a high definition world that the standards exist so does that make our job easier getting the message across that things can look so much better if if you take the time to calibrate i think so the problem we have though is as people go from standard definition or analog to high def even if it's crappy high def even if it's in the wrong resolution even if it's not one-to-one -one pixel mapped it looks so much better than the old stuff they were looking at they're going to say oh my gosh this is wonderful but the problem is you know they've, they've they've seen wonderful but they haven't seen nirvana at that point so you know they're, they're coming up one step some go to going to something digital but there's digital but then there's something that's that's even beyond that and much better than that um if you talk about uh, megs per second of data transfer, a typ typical analog broadcast is a you know 0.5 megs per second of data, and we're talking like an MPEG-2 compression. Um, you know DVDs are seven or eight megs per second. Um, you can have some high def at seven or eight megs per second, but in Blu-ray in MPEG-2, you're up to 30 megs per second. But so you know as you jump up, you know standard def or analog broadcast versus DVD looks great. But DVD to Blu-ray looks that much better again. But it's like, where are, the, where are these people starting at, and what's their perspective, and how far along this journey has have they come? And hopefully, we we can educate people along each step and say, you know, yeah, this looks good, but we can even get it looking better. And then when it get look, looks better, then we can even go above that, you know, and just you know get people walking the road. And uh, it's a, it's a it's a fun journey to walk on. I guess the the biggest hurdle that we have to come across is that this is a business um, when we're talking about. TVs and projectors and, and, and so on. And manufacturers, certainly in my experience and Steve's experience, um, speaking to engineers, they have no concept 
in in a lot of cases uh, when it comes to display calibration because they're trying to sell a product and they're trying to come up with things like Sharp's yellow pixel, um, the fourth primary, as they call it. Um, when, when you're coming up against that, how frustrating is that for you as a professional calibrator? And how do we get the message across to the manufacturers? Because they seem to be adding on more problems for us to, to overcome and, and, and to tell people, you know, this is, this is not the way we should be going. Well, it's always a struggle, the difference between engineering and marketing. And, uh, you know, someone in engineering comes up with an idea, then the guys in marketing says, well, we can't sell that or we need to have this to sell this many units to pay for everyone's salaries. So, you know, it's always a, it's always a tightrope to walk. Um, I, I think of another story real quick um, of some of the engineers in Japan. And when they're talking about home theater, Go into a typical Japanese apartment for an engineer and, and, and see that it's a 600 square feet with uh, with full down beds. And when we, when we bring that to America and we talk about a home theater, you know, my home theater room is 600 square feet. And that's the size of the entire Japanese engineer's apartment. Um, so some of these guys that are designing this stuff have no idea what they're designing it for and for what market they're designing it in. Um so that's just kind of that's always that it's always an educational. Uh, there's also always education going back and forth when you're talking to the engineering and the marketing guys and 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 a marketing standpoint saying how can we sell this to people and how how we how can we sell sell people a quality product and and a, and, a, and a product that people are going to want you know yes I want to have quality I don't want to have a a blasting image that's going to give me a sunburn. Well, Greg, it's uh, it's been fascinating as always. Thank you very much for taking the time to be with us on the podcast this evening. And thank you for taking us through the basics. And hopefully we'll have you back very soon to talk about some of the more advanced calibration techniques. I'd love to come back. Just let me know when and where. Thanks, Greg. Cheers, Greg. Take care now. Have a good evening. Yeah, cheers, Greg. Thanks. So to wrap up uh, this month's Home Cinema Podcast, we're quickly going to go through a couple of products we've had in for review recently. Uh, we're going to kick off with Russell and uh, look at the new Kef series of speakers. Now, we've been waiting on these for a little while, Russell, but you finally got them into your review room. And what uh, did you think? Indeed. Um, well, um, yeah, I mean, I first heard these back at Bristol. We mentioned Bristol back earlier in the show. Um, and where they... Use the surprisingly skinny speaker to, fit, to fill a surprisingly large room very, very effectively. And it's one of those things you think, oh, I'd like to get those back in my room, see if they actually do, you know, whether they're using some monster amplification or whatever to make them sound great. So it was good to get them here. Um, it, to, to, to describe them, um, the easiest way really is just to go and have a look at one. It's the speaker cabinet in total, front to back, including the grills, it is only 30 millimeters thick. Um, and yet what it has inside it is not some fancy planar driver technology. It is just a moving coil uh, driver. Um, but it's incredibly, incredibly skinny. It's a, it's a fa- fantastic piece of industrial design. You know, clearly uh, every aspect of that speaker has been linked together. I haven't just dreamt up a driver and then but, but bolted it into a cabinet. It's all been uh, developed as a, as a pretty seamless whole. Um, probably best to look at the review and see the exploded diagrams of the drivers to see how they how they pack it all in. Um, but as I say, the, the net result is something that's an inch and a quarter thick and you can just hang on a couple of screws on your wall if that's what you really want. Um, it is a lifestyle speaker. I'm not going to kid people that it's going to sound as good as a, you know, a full-size set of, of floor standards. I think... Um, there's a few compromises going on to package it like that. But what it does 
compared to a lot of other lifestyle speakers, which just tend to be um, short and narrow but still quite deep, um, is because it's it's long and flat. Um, you've got a serious amount of driver area in it. You've still got two four-inch drivers in there, um, which gives it almost the radiating area of a six-inch driver from a full-size loudspeaker. So they do go extraordinarily loud for what looks like not a lot of loudspeaker. You can sit and play them comfortably at high levels without them really starting to break up or, or sound nasty. Um, that sort of leads me on to one of the other things about them is they are a particularly easy listen. They're probably not... Um, I'd say much of a spotlight on mid-range detail if you're into your female vocal and, and really get off on that sort of stuff then you'll find speakers that will reveal a touch more um, but they're extremely even-handed be it with music, be it with films um, be it with normal speech off TV um, and they give a nice sort of like widespread of sound regardless of where you're sitting in the room which is a very easy to use day-to-day loudspeaker uh, do, are they, uh, Is it one, one set of speakers or are there different alternatives that you can use within within the setup? Uh, yeah, it's but basically the um, it's the same tweeter and the same driver in two different loudspeakers. One of which is about half the size of the other. That just contains one mid-bass driver, one tweeter. The larger ones, the T305s, um, which I had, uh, are, the, are the two driver ones. Um, the there's only currently one subwoofer in the T series range. So if you want to do something different there, then you're going to either buy more of the same or or buy a different subwoofer, be it from Kef or someone else. Um, the subwoofer was the subwoofer wasn't a bad little device actually. Um, they, they, they'd obviously decided that you know to keep the sort of the skinny form factor, there were going to be limits. It wasn't there was going to be depths. It wasn't going to be able to plumb and and engineered out the response to try and stop it from doing that and getting itself into trouble. So it always sounded like a nice tight little little subwoofer, if not the deepest device you've ever heard. Um, but it's possible also um, to to mix and match the speakers. You know, you could go for the three large ones across the front and four small ones at the rear if you want your seven point one, or or depending what your depending on what your room allows. So, what did you award it, Russell? Um, I awarded it. If I remember rightly, I highly recommended. And I suppose the important question: How much does it cost? Um, as tested, it, I think the package was a a few pennies under seventeen hundred pounds, um, depending on the sort of the mix and match of speakers. I think the basic package based on all the smaller speakers with the same subwoofer comes in at about twelve hundred. So you can you can pick and mix between that. Um from memory if you want to buy more of the same speakers of the T three oh fives, they're two hundred and fifty quid each. I think they're about hundred and seventy five or two hundred each for the individual smaller ones. So Russell, um I, I take it that this has to be used as a sub sat system. I mean you, you do you need Correct. to set proof for that? Yes. You, you do need a subwoofer. The speakers themselves um, d- deliver very little. Well, in my room, as I had them mounted, they basically seem to roll off pretty much under about ninety hertz. Then they're, they're not be- they're they're a sealed cabinet. They've not been ported or designed to try and go any lower. It's um yeah you could I suppose you could theoretically use them if you want no bass whatsoever. Um, but yeah, they're they're they're, they're a, a subsat system. Whether you're listening to two channel music or whether you're listening to your your films, you, you're going to need a sub around. Otherwise, they will tend to sound a bit thin and weak. Well, as I say, it, it did have quite prodigious volume capabilities, certainly in terms of sort of like the, the, the upper bass and up. I wouldn't say it was the most bombastic package uh, I've ever um, clapped my ears on. But then it's 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 a lifestyle package. It's That's part of the compromise of it. I mean, the sort of forum member who's going to buy it is still going to be somebody who demands decent sound out of their pack, uh, out of their speaker package, and they're going to get it. But it, it it deals with the sort of the, 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 the room 
or, or the space constraints a lot of people have to deal with, especially as going back to our previous conversation about, you know, the front room in this country will tend to be a space the whole family has to share for all purposes. Um, it's, an, you know, it's a remarkably efficient way of getting a, re, a very capable system into not a lot of space. Highly, highly recommended, Phil. Um, please, Kef, please, please, for something that's supposed to be skinny and mount unobtrusively on a wall, hurry up and produce a white one. <laughs> well, I mean, if they're aiming at the lifestyle market, then it's uh, white living rooms all around, isn't it? So uh, you, you, they're missing a trick there, I guess. Uh, let's move things on. Let's talk about TVs before we wrap up on the podcast. And uh, one of the most anticipated TVs of the last year. We say that because we saw it about a year ago. It was an active 3D TV when we saw it last. It's now been released to the market and it's now a cinema 3D which means it's a passive 3D system on board not the active system which I guess Steve falls into LG's line now that they're, they're really pushing uh, passive 3D as the technology to have at home. Absolutely right, Phil, they are. I mean, not necessarily a bad thing, of course, because, um, as, as I'm sure listeners know, I'm quite a big fan of the passive uh, format for TVs. Uh, I think the 3D looks it looks really good, and it's ni- a nice, comfortable viewing experience without flicker and um, no need for expensive um, battery-powered glasses. I, I guess one of the reasons why it's been delayed as long as it has, this TV, uh, which is the LW980T, is because um, they've shifted it from being an active display to a passive 3D display. Uh, and as you say, Phil, I mean, we saw we took our first look at it a, a year ago. Um, so there's been a lot of anticipation building up for this TV. And as a result, there was a lot of people waiting for the review. And I have to say, this is definitely a case of don't shoot the messenger, because uh, I wasn't uh, as impressed with the TV as I'd hoped to be. And I think a lot of people on the forums uh, were a bit disappointed by that fact. Um, but, you know, all I can do is, is, is report what I see. And um, whilst the addition of the nanotechnology, which is basically a filter that goes between the full LED backlight array and the panel, it does work because certainly without the localized dimming on, um, you had a nice smooth image where you could not see the lighting array on things like camera pans, which was unfortunately not the case with the 8900 and 9900, which came out last year. They also had the full array. Uh, and because the array is so close to the panel, uh, sometimes you could see um, the actual array itself yeah, in terms of uh, there'll be banding on, on the image. And that was the array. So the idea behind the nano filter was to eliminate this banding by putting this filter between the array and the panel. Uh, and as I say, uh, my initial impressions of it were very good because I, I had a, um, localized dimming turned off and there was no uh, p- banding with p- camera pans. I thought, oh, okay, excellent. The nano filter works and that's great. Um, but the um, black levels, native black levels were, were, I mean, I know we've been discussing this earlier with, with Greg, but the native black levels were noticeably poor. Um, even in a, even in a room with some ambient light, uh, they did not look very good. Uh, unfortunately, um, some I would say some of the worst native black levels I've seen on any uh, LCD um, display this year. However, if you activate the localized dimming, the black levels in, improve in, uh, quite a bit. Uh, unfortunately, once you activated the localized dimming, then I could see the array again in the same way that you could on the um, eight nine hundred nine nine hundred last year. I'm not quite sure why that is. Um, but it was definitely visible on, on camera pans, particularly with a uniform um, background colour, um, like a football field, for example, which is obviously the most common place you're going to see massive lo- loads of camera pans on a uniform background colour. Now, also, whilst the blacks were improved, of course, with any localised dimming, I mean, you were going to get haloing because, you know, unless you're, at, unless you're lighting each individual pixel, 
I don't see any way around it. And of course, if you're doing that, well, that's called plasma, and why don't you just go and buy a plasma instead? So it's kind of it was sort of like some areas were very good. Um, the the picture quality, uh, uh, particularly with high definition, was superb. Scaling was excellent. Uh, cadence detection was very good. The um, calibrated uh, grayscale and um, and uh, color gamut were a reference. So lots lots of things. And the 3D, of course, with passive was absolutely superb. I watched Pirates of the Caribbean four. Uh, on it and i have to say it was one of the most enjoyable 3d experiences i've ever had at home uh really really good 3d so lots of things about it were excellent um uh however unfortunately that the sort of the, the major selling point of this tv was meant to be the nano filter and eliminating the banding and as i say with localized dimming engaged that was not necessarily the case it also it's not a cheap tv uh you know it's it's well built it's beautiful to look at it's got the it's got the sort of the, the glass single glass front that's becoming quite popular now with manufacturers for their high-end tvs which looks lovely but obviously that doesn't mean you get a lot more reflections with ambient light in the room but it's it's not a cheap tv i'm not quite sure what the pricing is because there seems to be conflicting pricing and it is around about a two and a half grand mark sometimes even a bit higher from some some um, retailers so uh, this is a relatively expensive television and for that price point, I'd really like to have seen um, better blacks and banding completely eliminated. So from that point of view, it was a little bit disappointing. Having said that, of course, it's a 55-inch, the one I reviewed was a 55-inch display. So that's the largest um, cinema 3D display available. Um, and, and as we've mentioned many times before, when it comes to 3D, size does matter. And so the bigger the screen, the better, in my opinion. So as I say, the 3D on it were, was spectacular. Really, really good. Enjoyed that. Um, the 2D image was excellent. The only problem was I thought the native backs were a bit um, were, were a bit ropey and uh, and if you engage localized dimming then obviously you had haloing and also I could still see some banding then from the backlight array. So uh, as I say, unfortunately, my pointing this out has caused a lot of uh, consternation amongst members on the uh, of the forum uh, who were obviously very excited about this TV and looking forward to it for nearly a year. Um, obviously, at the end of the day, that's my experience with that panel. Now, there could be differences in production, etc. So clearly, as we always say, you know, if you're thinking of buying um, the LW980, and particularly if you're thinking of spending two and a half thousand quid, uh, go out there and demo it when you, when you can. Go and take a look at it yourself. Uh, try it with localized dimming on and off. Um, have a look at some football, preferably, uh, and, and make your own mind up. And, and But uh, my experience was very much um, a bit of a mixed bag. Uh, some very good things about it and some things that I found a little bit disappointing. Yeah, it is an important point that we always make, and sometimes it get lost. It gets lost when you're looking at the forums because there's so much conversation going on. Sometimes important points are, are lost there. Use the reviews as as a guide, basically. I'm, I think that's what we always say, Steve, isn't it? And um, obviously, we'll pick up on things, see if those things bother you. If not, if you can't see them and you think it's a great TV, then you know it's your money. So that wraps up everything for this. Uh, what has been an extended home cinema podcast it wasn't intended folks but hopefully it's been interesting and uh, we will be back again next month all i need to do now is thank steve russell and obviously thank greg again for turning up thanks guys cheers Phil. Cheers, Phil. so don't forget we publish uh, a whole host of podcasts every month we have the games podcast the movies podcast home cinema podcast and the podcast extra one podcast every week folks so uh, 
check out the podcast forum, sign up, subscribe and listen to us. We'll be back again for another home cinema podcast on the 21st of November. We also have our podcast Extra, which is on the 28th of October, the Movies Podcast on the 7th of November and the Gaming Podcast on the 14th of November. So this is Phil Hinton saying thanks very much for listening and we'll see you again soon. The AV Podcast was presented by Phil Hinton. Original music by Andrew Bassett and Richard Cosgrove. The AV Podcast was mixed and produced by Phil Hinton, and the senior producer was Stuart Wright. All content, including sound clips and music, is copyright material and featured for promotional use only. The AV Podcast is copyright M2M Limited.